Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pot of thunder and rock and roll, and we are returning to the rock today, starting, of course, with Duff McKagan and the patented and highly entertaining Duff McKagan joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling you. Hope uh, you're doing good. Hope everybody listening is doing great. Uh, you know, uh, survey just in. 48% of women have used vibrators. Yeah. And the other 52% have new ones. Thank you very much. Goodbye. That's good. Duff has been killing it lately. He sent in about six jokes all at once, and they're all good. So it's the perfect joke for the stories as well that we're going to be telling and hearing from my guest today. Of course, uh, Ricky Rackman, the legendary Ricky Rackman. You guys know him as the host of MTV's Headbangers Ball. He also starred, uh, started the infamous Cat House in Hollywood with his friend Timey Down from Faster Pussycat, one of the most decadent clubs in Hollywood history. Uh, definitely one of the hottest clubs in rock history as well. It's the stuff of legend. And wait till you hear the stories that Ricky's about to share. Let me set the scene for you. Guns N' Roses was the house band at the Cat House, and Axel wears a Cat House t-shirt in the video for Paradise City. Motley Crue hung out there. Alice Cooper asked to play there on Halloween. Robert Plant, Steven Tyler, even David Bowie partied at the Cat House. And wait till the story about a Drunk David Bowie get into a fight with uh, probably a drunk Axl Rose. <laughs> no cameras were allowed in the club, so celebrities and rock stars could cut loose inside, and they absolutely did. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, total debauchery in the 80s on the Sunset Strip. It was actually Axl Rose who then got Ricky the gig at MTV as the host of the Headbangers Ball. Ricky's got some pretty crazy stories about his time hosting that famous show. Talk about Nirvana's weird appearance. Spending a day at a water park with Alice in Chains. The reason he had to publicly apologize to Stone Temple Pilots, what was really going on between him and Dave Mustaine, and what brought his time on MTV's Headbangers Ball to an end. And there's good news, though. The Ball is back. Gimme Metal and Ricky Rockman are doing four new episodes of The Ball starting tomorrow, Saturday, April 17th. New episodes hosted by Ricky will drop every Saturday at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 Pacific. Just download the free Gimme Metal app and tune in. And this time, Ricky is choosing the videos all by himself. So follow Ricky on Twitter, at Ricky Rackman. That's R-I-K-I-R-A-C-H-T-M-A-N, Ricky Rackman. If you want to preview what you might see tomorrow night on The Ball and download the free Gimme Metal app so you can watch The Ball tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Crank the volume right now to hear some of the crazy stories from the Cat House Headbangers Ball, that decadent era of the 80s and early 90s. Ricky Rockman is here on Talk is Jericho, and it's been a long time coming. This is a chat that's been a long time coming with Ricky Rackman because we have crossed paths through mutual friends many times, but I'm not sure we've ever actually spent a lot of time together hanging out at all. Well, you do remember I worked with WCW, right? You did, but I don't think I was there when you did. <laughs> yes, you were. Thanks. Was I there? <laughs> yeah, thanks. That makes me feel really good. Are you sure? I think you were there for a little bit, weren't you? I don't think so, man, because oh. I remember thinking that's really cool that Ricky was there. I think I bet you if we if we if somebody's watching right now, Google when Ricky started and then see if I was still there at the time. I was there in 2001. Okay. 2000, 2000. So I left I left in 99. Bingo. Then maybe it was somewhere <laughs> afterwards. Then <laughs> somewhere, exactly. How did you end up working with WCW? I love wrestling. Okay, right. But the weirdest thing is, I had season tickets for the Kings right next to Jason Hervey. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and Jason Hervey was friends with Eric Bischoff, and I I loved wrestling and I wanted to do it. And they said, "Hey, come on and and do some stuff." And then, but every time I I came on to do WCW, they had me hosting Spring Break or talking about Tough Acton to Acton at the beach. It's like, <laughs> you know, I wanted to be like a manager or something like that. Right. And I never got the chance of doing it, but it was it was still fun because I got to go to wrestling, you know, and sure. sit in stands and watch, and then hang out with everybody afterwards. And that was right at that time. Like, you know, I was working the very last WCW night. So it was pretty cool. But it's, it's still broadcasting and being on camera. And that's kind of your forte. Yeah. And and it was, it's. I mean, I, it's taken me later in life to realize how lucky I am. The, the, the things that I love the most in life, honestly, are rock and roll, riding motorcycles, racing, and wrestling and i've got to work doing all four of those so it's like you know in this business we sometimes think about all this stuff like why the hell am i not on tv why right. am i not doing this 
And instead I'm like, holy crap, I've gone to all these places, worked with all these people and then got a checkboard. It's like, you know, you got to realize how grateful we are right now. Well, it's funny too, because um, it's interesting how people come in and out of your life and stuff. And I had just read the Nothing But a Good Time book. And as a result, watched Decline of the Western Civilization Part 2 for the millionth time. It's one of my all-time favorites. And right around that time, a mutual friend of ours, Charles Robinson, who's a referee in WWE, texts me that you're doing another version of the ball, a new version of the ball. And would you like to have Rick here on your show? I'm like, how can I not? Like, I've seen this guy everywhere now. I'm reading your quotes and, and seeing you on, on the documentary and all this other stuff. It's funny how that, all, that works out sometimes. The funnier thing is I'm friends with Charles Robinson now. <laughs> <laughs> um, Charles is great and he lives yeah. by me and we go out on the lake. But, um, you know, I always, I even said, I'm like, dude, if you talk to, you know, Chris, if you ever talk to him, because I know you guys work for different companies, but I'm like, I'd love to do your podcast. I, I listen to your podcast and stuff like that. And since we've sort of worked in different ways in the same type of stuff, I did. And uh, yeah, and lately it's cool because, you know, you don't want to think of yourself as being nostalgic and you don't want to think yourself as being retro. Yet I am, you know, because the cat house was in the 80s, Headbangers Ball was in the 90s. And lately so much of that stuff is not only nostalgic, but also current. It's like there's kids that are wearing Iron Maiden shirts, not because they're a great old band, because Iron Maiden's a good band. You know, right. people love, I mean, let's be honest, I hate to sound like the old guy, but the bands of the 90s were better than a lot of the bands now, even though there are great bands now. But, you know, you don't listen to some of the bands from the 80s and 90s and think, oh, that's all retro. You listen because you're like, oh, Guns N' Roses are great, you know? Yeah, and it's funny, too, because I remember in the 90s kind of transitioning from kind of the whole scene in the 80s of the 90s. I was like, I kind of downplayed a lot of a lot of the bands and um, listening back to them now, there were a lot of great bands in that time frame. But my initial re reluctance to like them was because it was kind of killing the scene that I was really into. I'm not just talking about the L.A. scene or the hair metal scene or whatever you want to call it. I'm talking about the whole metal scene in general, Iron Maiden you know, Judas Priest, Metallica, all those type of bands took a step back when when the 90s came in. But in retrospect, there's a lot of great stuff from that time frame. I tend to, you know, the bands that I think, even though my personal tastes tend to be a little bit heavier, more towards the thrash and punk stuff, but there's still a lot of those bands from that era, the Guns N' Roses, the LA Guns, the Faster Pussycat, the Junkyards, that were great, great bands. Standing alone, they were great bands, but they got lumped into that era. And because right. I was submerged in that, sign, that scene, I wasn't the, I mean, I'm not gonna lie, even through the whole Headbangers Ball time, I was not the biggest fan of Iron Maiden. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't my thing. And then I saw them live like about four years ago, and then I flew across country to see him again. It was like, yeah. oh, okay, I get it. You know, like there's certain bands that we kind of push aside, but now that we're older and wiser and open to so many different types of genres, you're like, wow, there's some great stuff. And there's some stuff that I look back on. I'm like, wow, that stuff's foolish. You know, it's just crap. <laughs> but but Headbangers Ball was such a huge thing because it's something that they, once again, reading in nothing but a good time and thinking back, MTV was so influential. And to really make it as a band back then, it was twofold. Dial MTV, you know, kind of late 80s, and then Headbangers Ball, you know, 88 to 93 or whatever the time frame was for that. Did you have a lot of influence in what was being played or was it kind of just talking head, play this, talk about this? Zero. Wow. Zero. You know, I just did this show called The Ball on the Gimme Metal app. Right. And the difference was they're like, you pick every video that gets played. I was like, okay. In I mean, it's a story I've told so many times, but... The truth is on Headbangers Ball, on the five years that I was there, there was only one video that I ever picked and that was on my birthday and it was a Motorhead video. I never picked any videos and there were videos that were on the Headbangers Ball that I loved and there were videos on the Headbangers Ball that were that were getting played during primetime. I'm like, look, I love Alice in Chains. I really love Alice in Chains, but if they're playing, right. you know, Rooster every single day during the day, play something different, you know? Mm -hmm. So... I never got any say on Headbangers Ball, which was was not good because everybody would think like, oh, Ricky, why are you playing, you know, Warrant all the time? If you're playing Slayer, you know, why don't you play more heavy stuff? And they all turned it to me, <laughs> unlike 
unlike wrestling, when everybody's saying you suck, it's not necessarily a good thing, you know? <laughs> so everybody, whatever was played on Headbangers Paula, everybody just took for granted that I picked it and I never picked one damn video ever. And I had to give out this stuff that I thought many times was crap. Many times it was good, but sometimes it was crap. And I had to go, here you go, kids. And they're like, Ricky, why are you giving us this stuff sucks? You know? What about some of the guys in the bands where they'd be like, come on, cut us a break, play our video. Did you ever get that? Always, always. I mean, I did one episode of this show, The Ball, and you know, my friend Jamie from Code Orange is like, dude, why didn't you play me on the first episode? I'm like, <laughs> it was one episode. It was just, I don't even know if I'm doing a second episode, mm -hmm. you know? It was just for fun. And you know, th the beauty is that at that time, you know, people used to criticize me because I'd always say like, oh, this band's my friend or that band my friend. But we all grew up in Hollywood and we were, everybody was in a local band, you know? Guns N' Roses was our house band at the Cat House. Mm -hmm. And then they just became the biggest rock and roll band in the world. So it wasn't as many bands saying, dude, give me a shot. It was like all the bands that would have said that are selling a million records. So it was just very awkward for me. Like I was the guy like, here's our group of friends. I'm the guy that didn't make it, but I get to talk about all my friends that made it. <laughs> Just talking about the ball that you mentioned, kind of re revisiting that. It's kind of a good idea to have the quote unquote video show on this stage because now anybody that does a video, you put it up on YouTube and either people watch it or they don't. I would love to see kind of probably what you, the answer that you're going to give somebody to say, here's this week's selection of tunes. And obviously you have such a great pedigree you bring the name value and the trust factor of people wanting to see what you're into these days. Is that kind of one of the reasons why you wanted to do this again? Absolutely. Because people would say like, okay, why am I going to, you know, watch a video show? Let's say I want to say, okay, I want to see something from Fozzie. Brrr, there it's yeah. there. It's that instantaneous. So why would somebody do that? Well, what if I can go ahead and play something that might be, you know, old and heavy from obituary and then turn you on to something like, or even Metallica one, I played Metallica one. Of course you could see that anywhere you played that. But then I'm like, okay, now here's this band from New Zealand called alien weaponry, or here's this band power trip. That maybe you weren't aware of, and the scene is aware of it, but people our age might not be aware of it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, I'm very picky on what, what gets played because even if it, it's not my cup of tea, I think it's a band that's worth playing. And it's very, you know, I still get people to this day that would say like, dude, you turned me on to Pantera, you turned me on to White Zombie. And I'm very flattered, even though I didn't pick the videos, I'm very flattered. But now that I feel like I sort of have that responsibility not to play something that's crap, because there's a good chance that somebody's gonna, you know, see something on the show that they really like. Yeah, and I think you probably take that very seriously. Like, I, I know that I have a radio show on Octane. Um, I've had it for a couple of years. And the only reason to do it, I mean, definitely not for the money and not that that matters anyways, but it's just fun to be able to choose whatever I want to choose. You know what I mean? It's not like, you know, terrestrial radio where there is still a playlist and, and to break into trust radio is hard. If I want to play you know, uh, like you mentioned, obituary and follow it up with Greta Van Fleet and follow it up with The Haunted and then put some Halloween on there. I can do whatever I want, but yes. people kind of come to hear me and see what I'm going to do. And then as a result, kind of, I'll give it a try because it's on Jericho's show. I think it's probably the same for you. It, it is. And, you know, when I'm, when I did the, when I did the first episode of the ball, it wasn't, Ricky's favorite songs. It wasn't Ricky's favorite bands because if I put all my favorite bands on there, you might not dig it. But I would put some bands on that I think you would like. And I put bands that I think are current. I put bands that I think are important and throw it back to something that you might not be aware of. And the beauty is, especially like, I hate genres. I never say the word hair metal. I hate yeah, that freaking it's term. A terrible word, yeah. But there's so many great aspects of rock. And I think now we're at a time that that people are more open if i'm hanging on the bus with the guys in the lamb of god and they're telling me how much they love faster pussycat well that might be we might have been in a time like in the 90s where if you like thrash you wouldn't like bands that played like right. the makeup and the hair and now we're more open to like yeah that's right we went to a poison show because there were so many chicks there but we also <laughs> went to see you know testament or whatever right. like that and so i like being able to do that but when i did the first episode of the ball the only thing i i said was I want everything to be heavy and be like, bam, 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 bam. And I don't want to have like any lulls. I want everything to be like, 
holy crap. And so you stay. And that's the other thing today. You know, if there's a song you don't like, you start touching it, trying to fast forward, skipping to the next. Well, we only aired the show once live. So you had to sit and watch all the videos. And, and, <laughs> and a lot of people said it wouldn't work, but I think it worked really well. Who did you do that through? Like who came up with the idea to have you do it again? The way that the whole thing happened was weird. I, I you know, I do a lot of work in NASCAR and there was a, a car that had Megadeth on it and it said, give me metal on the side. I'm like, what the hell is give me metal? And I'm the first person to say like, I've been wanting to do this forever, but you know, I don't have an agent or a manager or publicist or nothing. It's just, just me. And rather than make a kit and pictures and all this stuff. I'm like, I'm going to go ride my motorcycle, you know? <laughs> so I saw this gimme metal on the side of a car and I wrote and I'm saying, Hey, I'm Ricky Rackman. Like I did the headbangers ball. I see you're starting something called gimme TV. Can I do a show called the ball? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, okay. So then I picked the videos up, said, get all these videos cleared. I went on a zoom and called, did one interview. And then I shot all the segments with my phone and sent it to them and they put it on. It was that simple. Uh -huh. You know, I do wish somebody would say, Hey Ricky, let's do a real show called the ball. But I have a set. I have a feeling that then all of a sudden it might also be like, okay, this is what we're playing. Right. This is what we're playing. This is what we're playing. Look, you know, I don't know, but, then, but then this just gave me the freedom. This gave me the freedom to do whatever I want. And, and I, it, of, of course, it's on an app, so it didn't have the eyes that everybody else might, but it was a really good place to do the show. And, and I hope this is something that has legs because you, you are like me in the way of, there's certain things that you do and you know what your job is. You know what you do for money, but I don't think you're playing in Fozzie because it's going to make you rich. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of, I mean, a lot of it is a labor of love. Same thing with a lot of the things you do, like this podcast, even though this podcast is very successful, right. if you didn't like it, you wouldn't be doing it. Exactly. And right now we're at stages in our career where it's like, okay, I'm going to pick and choose. If I can do a bunch of things that make me a little bit of money, you know, it'll equal up to like a real job <laughs> and, and do stuff that we like. And I think that people can see through that as opposed to just being a talking head, talking about stuff, you right. know? So right now the, the ball was just a one-off or is it something you're going to do more of? The offer is there. They said, are you going to do more episodes? And I, and I was like, let's, let's talk about it, you know? Right. And, and it's not, I, I would say that I'm going to do something. It might be on the gimme metal app because they sure gave me a lot of freedom and they, and they were good people, but I would be shocked. I mean, I'll tell you right now, I'm going to do it again somewhere and I'd love to do it more because the cool thing was there was a live chat and as we all know, there's haters everywhere. Well, they stayed away. Yeah. It's like, you know, they they knew that it, it was just, it was really, really cool. And, you know, I'm doing it because I love it. But to know that so many people were really, really into it was very, very flattering. And to know that it was just also kids that were watching, like, I never got to watch a Headbangers Ball, but my mom used to watch it, which is weird <laughs> hearing, hearing that, you know? That, that's a weird thing. That that, yeah. that that right now we're at a part where we have generations like, you know, I'll go to a show and you know it, you'll go to a show. And I'm sure at your shows, you've had parents there with their kids that are both fans. Yeah, both. Absolutely. Especially when you have the, when you have the longevity, it's a good thing. Like you said, it's a good thing. Oh, it's a great thing. So, talking about about the original Headbangers Ball, which begat the ball, what kind of came first? Was it the Cat House that led to you getting the gig with Headbangers? Was yeah. it vice versa? Okay. So, I guess so. How, how did that come to be? Uh, I guess the Cat House in the first place. Were you? Were you? Did you move to LA to find your fame and fortune, like so many others did? Oh, I'm raised in Hollywood. I mean, oh, I wow. was I was delivering scripts on a moped on the Sunset Strip when I was 16. Like, <laughs> oh, I hate going up Los Angeles because the pedals won't go that fast. I mean, <laughs> I have memories of my whole life being in Hollywood. And I started and I, I do a podcast called the Cat House Hollywood podcast that I haven't put out for a while. But it's a whole history of the 80s rock scene in Hollywood because you know, I was DJing some clubs and I was like, what if I opened up a club and all our DJ did was play rock and roll. But then like every band started coming to this club and then Guns N' Roses was like, can we do a record release party for our EP there? I'm like, okay. And then they played there and then Faster Pussycat wanted to do it. And the next thing you know, like Alice Cooper saying, can I play their Halloween? And he's putting Cat House in his song. And, and the club got so huge because as certain bands got big, they still came back to the cat house too. We had like, you know, our little club 
you know, we'd have Alice in Chains with Pearl Jam opening and people would go there because it's a rock and roll dance club, you know, and it, right. it got huge. But then these bands are selling like, you know, millions of records and still like Motorhead's playing all the time. And all these bands want to play there because the Cat House was run by me and Tammy from Faster Pussycat helped me open it too. And it became like the coolest place because it was just, it was a really decadent place. I mean, if you talk about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, it was debauchery. And it became very, very famous till bands like Motley Crue were putting it in songs and everybody was talking about the cat house. And to talk about, come, I mean, right now I'm sitting in an office, there's one office here, another office there, and all we do is sell cat house shirts. Still, to, to this, this day, day right. world, bigger now than they ever were. I mean, because, you know, wow. Axel wore a cat house shirt in the Paradise City video, but now you see John Five wearing him and Tom Morello and everything else. And and this is from something that we did. I mean, the truth is, the cat house, as it says in the metal years, the cat house was open so me and Tammy could get free drinks and meet strippers. I mean, that's why we opened the club. <laughs> and now, this many years later, people are so excited about the whole cat house brand. And it's it's really, really flattering. Really flattering. Well, because I remember, like you said, like especially growing up and being a teenager, like L.A. was the was the place of dreams, like growing up in Winnipeg, Canada. And, you know, we had listened to it. It wasn't like head in the clouds. We had some cool shit going on. But like L.A. and the cat house, like to me, it seemed like the cat house was like open seven days a week. And, you know, like KLOS was the number one radio station and all that sort of stuff. But cat house was like what I'm finding out now is it was only like like a once a week thing that you would rent out a space somewhere and kind of turn it into the cat house for the night. Right. Absolutely. It was one night a week. And then I opened up another club called Bordello that was really decadent, but we didn't have bands play. Okay, actually, Bordello, this is like the way it was in the club days. Bordello, we had, we never had bands play, but I had this little VIP room. And the only way you could get in there was like, you would have to be one of my friends. And it wasn't like velvet rope thing. It was like, you know, us dirtbags got in there. Except one day people walked back there and they were sitting back there and there was this guy up there playing guitar and this guy singing the blues with a bottle of wine. And somebody's <laughs> like, dude, that guy in the VIP room, he almost looks like Glenn Danzig. And it was Glenn Danzig <laughs> sat in the VIP room singing the blues all night. I mean, it was, nice. we did, we did stuff like that, but the cat house was just one night a week because I didn't want it to be the type of thing that people would say, Oh, guns and roses is playing. Who's playing next week. I wanted people to go every Tuesday and never know who's playing. I mean, when gotcha. Megadeth played, it was Bick and the Rattleheads. Yeah. You know, we never really announced who the bands would be that would play there because the club was going to be packed anyway. When Body Count played there, they were banned. They released Cop Killer and Ice-T used to go to the club. Cop Killer was released. They said, we're not allowed to play any shows. We're banned from Los Angeles. I'm like, do you want to play here? He's like, dude, we're banned. I'm like, I don't care. So <laughs> they played that. They played that following week at the Cat House. It was just this. I mean, me being this dumb punk kid from Hollywood in a playground, being able to do whatever he wants, and it was just brilliant. We did it one day a week. We did it for years, and then, as the legend goes, I was telling, talking to Axel about Headbangers Ball, and I was like, "Dude, I'd love to do that." And he, so he called MTV, set up my audition, went to New York with me, and the guy from the Cat House became the host of Headbangers Ball, which made the Cat House even bigger. Yeah, bigger. And then everything was like great for many, many years. Okay, so let's let's go back a bit because you told about eighteen years of stories in, in thirty seconds. But check this out: I, I never put two and two together, but in about I think it was ninety one. I went to California. We had, a, we had a show in Pomona, California that we drove from Calgary down to Pomona and then for one show and then stayed in L.A. for a couple of days. And I remember hearing on the radio Vic and the Rattleheads playing at the Cat House. And the guys I was with, they weren't really metal guys. The one guy was. I said, Vic and the Rattleheads. Because I, I remember the Beatles when they would play under pseudonyms. And so I said, that's Megadeth, dude. Right. Megadeth. So we went to the Cat House and it was super packed and super lined up. I couldn't get in. But I saw this little guy with long hair and a white fringe leather jacket walking into the club. It was Lars. Oh, yeah. Remember Lars used to wear that jacket? And I was oh, like, yeah. hey, Lars, how's it going? He's like, kind of looked at me like I was a weird. But I remember standing outside the cat house trying to get in, but it was too packed because Vic and the Rattleheads were playing there. The greatest <laughs> thing is because, you know, I ran the club, 
we did like people would come up that were like celebrities and we didn't care. Yeah. It's just like everybody got treated the same. I never allowed any cameras in the club. I mean, now you couldn't do it these right. days. And because that like the most decadent stuff would happen in the bathrooms and this and this and the girls would go there because at first we just invited all the strippers and mud wrestlers because Tammy obviously helped with that because he knew all those. <laughs> then they would all go and we'd take care of them. But then rock stars would go because he knew all the girls were there. And then more girls would go because the rock stars were there. And I don't say this like cheesy and bragging, but you can search anywhere. The cat house was notorious for having the most beautiful women in the world. And everybody used to dress so decadent. So what happened was the fashion magazines like Women's Wear Daily, California mm. Apparel News, they started talking about this fashion. And what would happen is women that were like very respected in the business world would go there and were like lingerie as a top. And know that this is playtime. This is where we dress sleazy and and we can act like whores, even if we're not. Right. You know, it wasn't a thing like we were, you know, degrading women. It was like, no, women had the power. They could be there and it was playtime and be as decadent as they want for this one night. And then when they go back on Wednesday, they go back to their normal lives. But yeah, we'd have a lot of bands play unannounced because, you know, you can't announce Megadeth playing when they're playing 15,000 seniors <laughs> right. and our legal capacity is 500, you know, <laughs> but it was, and so it was, it was just, it was so much fun. And the thing is, you know, people said, why don't you open up a cat house? Why don't you open up a cat house again? It wasn't the same yeah. because, because it's like, you know, I mean, I will tell you though, when things get back to normal, we're going to be dying to go out. Like I, I already looked at your itinerary. I'm like, Oh, I could go see that. Show. I could go. <laughs> yeah. It's like now we're more starving for live entertainment. And I'm telling you people, if you're going to shows and you're going to watch the band with your arms folded, just stay home. You know, yeah. now is the time that we get out there. We get in the pit. Okay. I don't get in the pit anymore, but we go out there and we scream and yell. And like, I can't wait to see live entertainment. I'm going nuts. When you talk about the Caddos, and once again, being Hollywood, if it's the hot place to go, was there other celebrities coming in that weren't necessarily like heavy metal? Like, who are some of the bigger names that would show up on a Tuesday just to come hang out? Well, one of the episodes of the podcast is this guy, Josh Richmond, that talks about people calling him up saying, can you get me in front of the line? Like Brad Pitt, Robert Downey Jr. went there. Uh, God, uh, there's a great story at Bordello with Michelle Pfeiffer and Cher in the um, DJ booth taking off their sweater and spinning it around, throwing it into the crowd. I mean, the thing is because nobody cared at the cat house. And if you were like an autograph seeker and you kind of did that, you left. There wasn't roped off sections. It was just like where everybody would just kind of hang out. So we had every celebrity you could possibly imagine. Um, I did some racing with Mark Paul that was in the one in Saved by the Bell. And one time he came to Bordello with a bunch of the cast from Saved by the Bell and they walked in and they walked out. <laughs> you know, Christina Applegate helped work in the coat check. You know, I mean, there were just so many people that would go there because for a while the rock and roll thing became very hip, which I think was kind of the death of our underground rock mm. scene because it was very hip. Right, and I mean, sure. it was, you know, there were every kind of celebrity, everybody you could imagine would be there. I remember one time the guys from Millie Vanilli, this happened because this I remember because I was sober and it happened to me. The guys from Millie Vanilli came up to the door and was saying something in broken English about um, if they come in, would we present them with women in cocaine? And I was like, <laughs> no, and I didn't care that they were Millie Vanilli. Gene Simmons showed up, paid to get in. I remember that. I remember I was standing in the DJ booth and the girl that I was dating came up to me in the DJ booth and she's like, yeah, but Robert Plant is, I'm like, Robert Plant is in the club. And she's like, yeah. I'm like, why didn't you tell me Robert Plant is in the club? Well, I didn't want to bother you. I'm like, I've never met Rob. Like I've met everybody, but I've never met anybody in Led Zeppelin. I've never met anybody in the Rolling Stones. Okay. I was like, why didn't you tell me Robert Plant was in my club? You know, <laughs> there's a notorious story in the, um, in the Cat House Hollywood podcast that everybody's heard this story so many times, but it happened at the club of Axel chasing David Bowie down the street saying he was going to kill him. You got to tell that story briefly because I've never heard it from you. Okay, real briefly, and it's on the Cat House Hollywood podcast, but real, okay, real <laughs> briefly, one of the greatest Guns N' Roses shows ever was in October when they were they shot the It's So Easy video. If you ever seen that video of them playing live, that's at the Cat House. Right, okay. And David Bowie was there and David Bowie was 
wasted, just so wasted. And our DJ is like the biggest Bowie fan. And he was so disappointed because, you know, if you have a rock star or idol show up and they're drunk, you know, it's all right. But what about when you see your idol and he's just like not even cool? And he was just obnoxious. And David Bowie was telling our DJ Joseph, I'm going to get up there and I'm going to sing with Guns N' Roses. And, (laughs) And Joseph is saying, which, you know, sitting here thinks like, imagine if that happened. But Joseph, our DJ, says like, um, Mr. Bowie, that's that's not a good idea. This is their show. This is their night. You know, that's not, oh, I'm going to go up there. And then David Bowie was just this obnoxious drunk guy and tried to pick up on Aaron Everly, which was Axel's girlfriend at the time. Anybody that, that, that truly knows Axel, he is a badass. He will destroy. And back then, you, he was one of the baddest street fighters in Hollywood. He really was. Wow. So when he heard that David Bowie was trying to pick up on Aaron, he went nuts and he was going to kill David Bowie. And so then he found out that David Bowie, <laughs> this is so funny. <laughs> so he finds out that David Bowie's in front. He's walking down the stairs. My doorman comes up to me, says, Ricky, Axel is going to, says he's going to kill David Bowie. He's going to chase him down the street. And he's going to kill him. <laughs> First of all, Guns N' Roses could do anything in the club. And when your doorman says, Axl Rose is going to go kill David Bowie, what do you do? And I just, this is what I did, honestly. He says, Axl Rose says he's going to go kill David Bowie. And I sit there and I like this. Okay. And for the user <laughs> listening, basically I had like zero face. Because so, right. you don't know how to react to anything like that. You know, what are you going to do? And I just didn't do anything. So what happened was Axel went downstairs and was chasing David Bowie down the street saying, I'm going to kill you, Tin Man. Because that's when David was in a band <laughs> the called machine. The Tin Machine. He goes, I'm going to kill you, Tin Man. And I did not see that. But from what I understand that later they met up at the China Club and everything was funny and and cool and everything. But I was like, you know, there's certain instances that happen in life that are so surreal. Right. And the thing is, I read about these stories in books or in magazines and the stories are preposterous. And then I read stories that people get it wrong of things that happen at the cat house. I mean, the whole Vincent Izzy feud started right next to me. So I read about these things happening and I'm like, okay, that's not how it happened. And I never wrote a book or did any of that stuff. And it's just crazy the things that were just kind of normal occurrences that 20 years later, people are still telling these stories and you're like, wow, those all happened in in my club, you know, and it's, it's kind of, it's kind (laughs) of, kind of cool that, that I unknowingly was a big part of rock and roll history. Well, and not just from the Caddos, but also from Headbangers Ball too, because that is still very iconic. Now, once again, growing up, and here's a funny story, growing up in Canada, we didn't have MTV or the Headbangers Ball. We had uh, much music and the Power Hour. Well, the host of the Power Hour, kind of the, the, the Ricky Rockman of the Power Hour, was a guy called J.D. Roberts. J.D. Roberts is now on Fox News as one of the biggest political correspondents. His name is John Roberts. If you ever go to Fox Whenever he was doing it, when Trump did the press conference, he go, John, what do you got for me, John? That's J.D. Roberts. No I always take pictures and send it to my friends back in Canada. Look at J.D. Roberts, man. He hit the big time. So it's kind of funny to see, you know, the, 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 the evolution of the guys like yourself who created this moment as a teenager who went on and became, you know, bigger stars and other things as well. Look at Kennedy. Kennedy is on Fox as well. Big time. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And uh, Adam Curry who a lot of people, you know, seem to give a hard time to. Adam Curry was the guy that was on Headbangers Ball before me, and he had, like, big, beautiful hair and everything. He pretty much kind of created the podcast. So he is the guy that kind of really helped develop the whole format of podcasting. So I believe he is doing okay. Um, I don't know what anybody – I was like – like, I see, like, when people say, oh, there's specials on um, MTV VJs. I still find it very surreal that I was an MTV BJ yeah. because I was just like, yeah, I'm the guy that just hung out in Hollywood and at the club. And, <laughs> and it was really weird to think like I was that guy, you know, because there becomes a time that your name is a product. And I know that you can probably relate to this because you know your name and you know how your friends talk to you and stuff like that. But there's people that talk about you and you represent something, you know, you represent rock and roll or metal or wrestling or something like that. And it's, it's, it's just very surreal. But 
but very flattering at the same time that it's still because there's a lot of people that were working in my era that everybody's like, who? Mm-hmm. I mean, I still get I still get whatever happened to, but that's OK. <laughs> so when you came into Headbangers Ball, they're obviously looking for a, a fresher perspective, maybe somebody cooler because Adam Curry was kind of from that first wave of MTV DJs. Yeah. So what was it like? What was the concept of the show when you first got involved? Well, Headbangers Ball had already been on and yeah. everybody there, I mean, from Sam Kennison to Howard Stern to D. Snyder, people had hosted it before. And when I went on the show, I was terrible because I had never done television. You know, everybody else might have started doing radio or or started, you know, hosting all these other shows before, but I had no experience whatsoever. And so I was reading the cards like, oh, and and I hear you're recording in this studio. Oh, and I hear you're doing that. So I was just terrible. And then they say, okay, Ricky, uh, we're going to fly you to England to interview Aerosmith. I'm like, okay, (laughs) you know, and I didn't know. Uh, Luckily, a lot of the people that I had worked with, like Metallica or any of these bands, Danzig, Megadeth, they had all been locals at the regulars at the Cat House. So I had relationships with them. But, you know, it took me a while for me to become comfortable and develop a style, which was the style was borderlining on apathy, just like, okay, here we are. And understanding that it's okay. Like I'm the guy that I don't mind being the butt end of a joke, you know? Right. The, the, the shows that people talk the most about were Allison Chains at the water park. Um, they talk about Dave Mustaine giving me a hard time, which I loved. And they talk about the Nirvana show, obviously, which was just, just weird. And um, so it was just music videos, me talking to bands. And then, you know, as I got more comfortable, we got into doing not necessarily skits, but doing stuff from bizarre locations like water parks or skydiving or New Orleans or whatever. So talk about something, because you were there 90 to 95, and yeah. that's kind of the sea change between, you know, the L.A. scene, shall we call it? You know, we're not going to use the, 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 the hair term, but the L.A. scene kind of going into the grunge scene. So how, how was that transition? Like, how did that affect the show and, and kind of you as a, as, a, as a presenter and the whole scene in general? See, I'm in the minority because every there's I mean most of my peers and a lot of my friends still say you know grunge killed metal and to me you know when I listen to Soundgarden I hear Sabbath you know or Led Zeppelin Chris Cornell I hear those influences and when Allison Chains used to play the cat house they were heavy and they were great and as far as Nirvana you know I when that first Nirvana record came out and I was listening to Bleach and Negative Creep and I was like damn, these songs are so good. What happened was people were changing the style of on stage as opposed to spending a lot of time in the appearance. It was more like we're dressing down. We're from Seattle. We're wearing flannel and and we're just kind of not caring a little bit when we're playing on stage. It was more of an apathetic type of thing. And uh, But what happened is with everything, things die out. You know, I mean, for for all the people that say, don't you understand, Warrant and Poison and Winger would have been so huge if it wasn't for for grunge. I was like, if if you truly believe that, that says a lot about the music that you listen to, that it's so strong that it'll die when something new comes along. You know, strong bands will last. There's bands that were great bands from that era that the fan base just kind of. I mean, you got to grow up and, and let's let's be honest. If Headbangers Ball had five million viewers every single Saturday night, it would still be on today. But the fan base died. So you can't say the scene turned its back on it. Yes, MTV does tend to look for things that were fresh and new. And that's what happened with the grunge thing. And, you know, even as much as I don't like the term hair metal, I don't really like the term grunge either, because I really like Soundgarden as a band. And, and I, I loved Mother Love. Oh, I love, love, and, love, love, love yeah. and those those are just great, great rock bands, you know, yeah. and and uh, I think the Nirvana thing was just so big. And the other music was probably on the way down that people like to think that, you know, 
grunge killed it. And like I said, you know, I've ridden motorcycles my whole life. I've always worn flannels because there's a flannel hanging up right there because when it gets cold, I put on my flannel. But everybody's like, oh, Ricky's wearing a flannel now. Oh, because yeah. it's just like now, you know, my hair's long again. And when I grow a beard, it's like, oh, everybody, Ricky's trying to look like Dave Grohl. I'm like, dude, my hair's long and I've always worn a beard. <laughs> it's like people just want to yeah. want to pick of little course, things of course. that don't work right. That's just what they do. You mentioned briefly, but to go into a little bit more detail. You talked about the, the, the three th- ones that, that stand out to you. It was Allison Chains at the Water Park. And is the idea just to take the band out of a normal studio element and watch them frolic in the in the in the rides? The beauty of that of Alice in Chains in particular was every time we did a show, they wanted to do stupid stuff. And with the water park, which if anybody's seen that movie about Action Park, I mean that movie about Action Park is me and Allison Chains through most of the movie because, you know, Action Park and people that don't know was a place in, I think it was New York or New Jersey, that was a water park that killed people. It was the most dangerous water. Really? Have you seen no. this? No. Have you not seen? Oh, dude, you've got to see this. It, the, there's a documentary you have to watch. It's called Class Action Park. Okay. Okay. And this is a water park that they used to have. And I remember and this water park, everything was dangerous and everybody was getting high when they worked there <laughs> and everybody was getting hurt. I remember you got to watch. I it. will. Oh, you're going to love this show. Just so as an example, I remember we were riding on a chairlift and we're going up the lift to the mountains to go down some of these slides. And I'm looking at, there's a slide next to us and the slide has a big loop. You go down a a fiberglass tube that goes to a loop. And I remember sitting there, I'm like, how do they have a loop in a water park? And the guy says, yeah, they just, they just closed it because some guy broke his nose on it. What turns out people died in because they would go up and get stuck or they'd go up halfway and smash their faces. People were getting destroyed. So there's this documentary. So, so the most popular headbangers Bob was when we did Alice in Chains at the water park. So they wanted us to stop at a sporting goods store and they bought speedos and flippers and snorkels and swim fins and, and inflatables. And they just acted like goofballs. (laughs) And then we did another one where we're at a mansion. And they all had robes and facial masks and smoking long cigarettes. And Lane and Jerry and, and actually all of them, they would just love playing. You yeah. know, they weren't like, we're, we're robbed. We got to be serious all the time. They wanted to be goofballs. And that's what we all did. And that's why people always remember those shows. And, you know, Pantera was another band that was really good at this because out of any hard rock band, I believe Pantera and, and Diamond Vinny, man, those guys were like yeah. basically us just in a band. They wanted to have beers with their fans. They wanted to hang out with everybody. And so when we did a show, we just goofed around Texas and did that with them. And, you know, they got it. I, you know, I, I always got bored with the bands that were like, oh, we're serious. We have to be this and we have to be that. And we can't be like, you know, I'm like, Come, let's have fun. Yeah. And that's what that's what a lot of these bands did on Headbangers Ball. And, you know, I'm never I've never been accused of being too cerebral or serious. I like to be the butt end of a joke. I like to have fun. And that's that's what we did on the ball. And that's what was so great. And and you get to see these bands in a different environment. You know, there's a lot of other heavy metal hosts that do great jobs. But I don't care about who produced anybody's record. I just don't care. I don't even know what that means. Right. But, you know, I'm more interested in like, you know, hey, see any good scary movies lately yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or stuff like that. <laughs> when you talk about Mustaine and, and Dave is a very uh, he's got a very interesting personality at times. Was he giving you a hard time? Legit? What was he saying? What happened? The thing is. Dave Mustaine gave me a really hard time every episode. Oh, nice hair. Because, you know, when I, in 92, I cut all my hair off. And he's like, oh, nice hair, Ricky. Oh, God. Oh, Ricky. Oh, yeah. The only <laughs> turd is you. So he used to give me a hard time all the time. And everybody believed that Dave Mustaine hated me. They didn't realize that Dave Mustaine is also playing the cat house that week. Or that Dave Mustaine is inviting me to his wedding when I'm the only other rocker there. So, but he would always give me a hard time. And one time he took it a little too far when he was on stage and he says like, yeah, why doesn't Ricky Rackman just die and put us out of his misery? And I said something to him on MTV. I was like, dude, that went too far. And he actually apologized. But Dave Mustaine always gave me a hard time. Now, my job is to, I could be like, 
dude, that's not cool. Like mellow out or, or say, I don't want to work with him. But the fact is people go up and say, dude, Dave Mustaine hated you. Well, they don't ever talk about the interviews with Lars. They talk about Dave Mustaine. And because everybody remembered those shows and my job, I don't mind being the butt end of a joke if it's gonna be something that people like watching. And, you know, I saw Dave Mustaine about three years ago and he came up to me, he's like, you know what? We were the Abbott and Costello of MTV. I'm like, <laughs> perfect, because because people want to remember that. And if it means, I mean, you get it more yeah. than most people get it. You got to have a good guy and a bad guy to make it interesting. You have to have interaction. And almost like, you know, I, I mentioned how much I love wrestling, almost like wrestling. If I'm going to be the guy, the heel, even though Dave's the ultimate heel, right. but if I'm going to be the guy and Dave Mustaine's going to bust my balls and everybody loves seeing Dave Mustaine bust Ricky Rackman's balls, then, then I can be like, dude, that's too far. Or I can take it and let everybody love it. I mean, everybody's like, oh, Glenn Danzig hated Ricky. He tried to throw him in the fire. Really? Glenn also <laughs> played the cat house. And do you think that he really tried to throw me in a fire? Because <laughs> it, I did piss him off though, because... Um, I, I love Danzig. I love the Misfits. And the, the story was that when I talked to Glenn, do not mention the Misfits because he's never going to do the Misfits again. So we're in Germany and, I, and I'm like, I'm like, okay, Glenn, I got a question. He's like, don't do it. And this was all on air. I'm like, I got a question, Glenn. Let's just say he's like, don't say it. I'm like, let's say we do a pay-per-view and for what events and he pretends to throw me in the fire. And as it turns out, the Misfits did get back together and I went, it was great. On a high level, they got back together, didn't they? <laughs> it was really good. But you know, it was stuff like that. If there was an artist that I believed really was a jerk, you know, I would say like, dude, I don't want to do stuff with this. I mean, now we're cool, but me and CC DeVille had a pretty good feud for a little bit that we didn't really like each mm. other, but he was in his drug right. phase and now CC's great. And, you know, if there were bands that I really didn't like, you know, it would, I'm sure we wouldn't have had him on the ball if I didn't want to, but that it's, it's not about who likes right. and doesn't like Ricky Rackman. It's about entertainment. Pro. Tell us about the Nirvana. You said that was kind of weird. Well, when Nirvana came on the ball, this was right before they broke because they were on Headbangers Ball before they were on any of the shows. And uh, they they come out and this is when, I, you know, this is a time like I remember like Guns N' Roses were like into Nirvana, like we were all kind of into Nirvana. And so I'm excited because this is a band from Seattle that didn't hang out at the Cat House. This is a band that I don't know these guys. So even though most bands that were on the Headbangers Ball, I admit at one time at the Cat House, here's somebody that I don't know. And I'm the first one to tell you. I'm a fan, okay? I am not a journalist or reporter. I am a fan. So I'm like, oh, Kurt Cobain's in the green room. Very cool. I'm going to go meet Kurt Cobain. So I walk into the green room, and the dude is passed out face down on the carpet. And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I'm not going to meet Kurt Cobain. So I go in there, and the first time I see him, he walks out on the show, and he was just just wasted, like bad wasted and he had a ye big yellow ball gown on with you know the collar went up to his ears and he sat next to me and you could just tell that he didn't really even want to be right. there and when somebody doesn't want to be there i kind of don't want them there either even though i love nirvana and the truth was i never understood until like <laughs> maybe 10 years later that he wore the ball gown because it was the ball he wore a gown to be on the ball oh, gotcha. okay i didn't get the joke but you know so you know it's been it's been played in nirvana documentaries and it's all over the internet and it was like oh ricky was so uncomfortable i, I wasn't necessarily uncomfortable I was just like i kind of bummed out i'm like dude you don't have to be on the right. headbangers ball like you're on the show enjoy being here or make way for a band that really want because there's a lot of bands that want to be on the Headbangers Ball, and it, it you know as it turns out what was not a great situation from my standpoint ended up being like well dude I got to interview Kurt yeah. Cobain which is which is you know in in hindsight that's like saying you know you interviewed John Lennon mm -hmm. so so it was kind of cool but it wasn't a great show. Was that hard for you back then? Like if you're you know the host and you're you want every show to be great. And you never know what you're going to get with, with some certain guys, you know, it's not the same now because, because the drugs aren't as prevalent, but was there times when guys would come in wasted and you're like, fuck, 
but you still got to be a pro and put on the best show you can, even though the guy is just not all there. Yeah, there were times, uh, or or when I'm interviewing a band that I just don't like, right. and that I just that I just really don't want to be here. And the thing that I I really don't like is rock stars. And when I say that, I don't mean rock stars. It's like, there's people that I'm like, dude, that's a rock star. And there's also people that are rock stars that act like rock stars. You know, when I just started, Michael Schenker was on the show and I'm talking, he's playing guitar and playing guitar all the time. And I'm like, like, he's kind of being a dick, Mm. you know? And I'm just like, dude, whatever. And, uh, and that kind of bummed me out a lot. And, you know, it, it also works that there might be bands that I didn't like. And when I, they get on the show, they're really, really cool. And I end up checking out their music. I'm like, oh, it doesn't sound so bad. You know, I think every band that was on the show really wanted to be there. Um, I don't think Nirvana did want to be there. And, you know, even when I interviewed Eddie Vedder and he's just drawing on his arm, he's writing like Fugazi with a marking pen or something. <laughs> he didn't seem like he wanted to be there, but I think they were just in an awkward position and, and he was still cool. But there were, you know, I got in trouble for saying something mean about Scott Weiland and Stone Temple Pilots because all I said was when Stone Temple Pilots came out, I thought that they sounded a lot like Alice in Chains. And I thought they were taking a lot of their stuff from that whole Seattle thing. And all I said was, yeah, who don't they sound like? And I got in so much trouble that I had to call up to Scott really? and apologize. Oh, I had to apologize. I had to call up Scott because he said, because of Ricky Rackman's attitude, we're not going to do anything on MTV. Wow. And and that's not good for me. <laughs> so I had to call up and apologize. And then they ended up coming back and doing the acoustic version of Plush that everybody's heard. If you've ever heard the whole version of that, I'm actually here, Stone Temple Pilots. You know, I actually introduced them. That was for, um, I don't remember if it was a Headbangers Ball or a different show I did, but that was a band that, you know, I said one thing and and it wasn't like I don't like Stone Temple Pilots, a fine band, you know, mm. but it was just that, kind of was you know i i can't give my opinion too much and you know i think people thought that me and mustaine really didn't like each other but that's not the case and i liked people giving me a hard time and people knew they could you know my birthday comes along and biohazard throws a cake in my face or stuff like that people knew they could have fun and and if, if you're a band the thing is you know and you're a hard rock heavy metal band if you're not on the ball, that's not good. right. You know, Tom Araya was notorious for giving me a hard time on and off camera, but he still knew like it's good that Slayer's on the Headbangers Ball. Right. Was there any other a time when you got in trouble for anything that happened or said or done? Oh, I got in a lot of trouble, but not on Headbangers Ball. <laughs> what else? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I there, there, there's, there's a reason that my career took a big disappearance for about four or five years. Yeah. But um, on Headbangers Ball, I don't think anything where I really got in trouble with bands. I mean, I we always went out and did stuff afterwards. I remember taking Rachel from Skid Row to go see this band that he wasn't familiar with called Suicidal Tendencies ah. and, you know, taking these people to different environments. But I don't think we really got in, into any trouble. And I'm sure, I'm sure, Chris, I'll, we'll get, we'll get off the air and I'll, I'll think about all these crazy <laughs> things that we did now. I mean, we always did stuff. I mean, you get a bunch of rock bands, you give them like money to go do shows and things are going to get broken and, and people are going to cause trouble. But I can't think of any times that I really got in trouble. I just meant like if there's anything you got in trouble with your superiors at MTV for anything that went down. Well, <laughs> I got, there was a time that I was getting 400 handwritten letters a week. And so what happened was I hired somebody to help me do the fan letters and help me answer them. Some of them were good. <laughs> some. And then, but some were like the video suck. Why are you playing? You know, why are you playing? this ballad by slaughter when we should be it's the headbangers ball and so i wrote back to some of these people like look i don't like this video either i don't know why we're playing it and i guess i made a number wrong on a zip code because it went back to mtv and that might have contributed to my demise on mtv i'm not Uh. sure because I, because I took the Headbangers Ball seriously. Mm. You know, this was like, you know, no matter what I do, I've had radio shows that have been on for decades and I might do the cat house and I might work in racing or any sports, 
but I'm always going to be that guy from Headbangers Ball. Mm-hmm. So I took it very personal and I wanted to put out a really, really good product, you know? So I did take it personal. And when things I thought weren't really great and they were just kind of, here's the playlist, here's the playlist. I'm like, we've been playing that song all day. Why are we playing it on Headbangers Ball? If you want to play that band, play something obscure from the band, maybe a heavier song. So, Well, you know, as we start to wind down, it's funny because when I'm talking to you, there's once in a while you have this kind of look on your face that reminds me totally of of the line in, in uh, Decline of the Western Civilization where like you're like, we're from Texas and we don't think people should wear the lingerie in the club. And you're like, I know, I like that. Like this kind of lascivious. <laughs> that was, that was, when that, okay. When, Tell us about when, that. When I filmed the metal years, first of all, that was nine. Okay. That was a long time ago. 1987. Okay. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yes. It was 1987. And I was doing a lot of everything back then. <laughs> I mean, I was doing a lot of sex, drugs, rock and roll and rock and roll was like the third <laughs> yeah, on the list. Right. So, when you're this kid from Hollywood and all of a sudden you open up this club that becomes truly a worldwide phenomenon where, and I'm not saying this is a cliche, but truly the most beautiful women in the world went to my club. And if the girls can't get Axel and they can't get Nikki and they can't get Tammy and they can't get, well, then maybe they'll come talk to me. So they were still enough. So all of a sudden, I'm this guy that has no game. You know, I had no game. But all of a sudden, like, there are these beautiful women and from all different adult businesses coming up to me and talking to me and, and want to be. And I'm just like, this is the great. I get free drinks. I get everything in the world. And all of a sudden, I'm just this kid. I mean, I was just old enough to drink. Mm. And I'm sitting there. And... um the truth is, in the cat house, there was no air conditioning, and I saw that when the air conditioning didn't work, that women would wear hardly any clothes to dance, and it was hot and sweaty, and I relished in that. And you know that part in the middle years, she's like, oh, and and Penelope's Penelope Spears, who made the film, is cool because you know she's also a very independent, strong yes, woman. She's great, and 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 so you know. She was looking at me as this punk kid talking about scamming on girls because it's hot. And she's probably saying it in a way a little bit condescending, but not really because I I, I have I think she did a great job of the film. But I'm this dumb, cocky kid. So I'm like, yeah, we keep it we keep it hot in there because girls don't wear clothes. That's the way I like it. And it was just, you know, it was a stupid, stupid comment. But it was true and it came from the heart. We did everything. You know, that was a time that we didn't do stuff thinking, okay, this real raunchy stuff is just great because people are going to like it. It was more like, let's just do this crazy decadent stuff. And then the world loved it. And we're like, okay, what else can we do? Let's do this Wild West night where we do this crazy stuff. And everybody loved it. I'm like, this is crazy. And it got to the point that I just got cocky because everything I did was working. And then the next thing you know, your friend's record just went platinum and he's going to do something more with the cat house. And it was just like, you know, you get handed all these gifts and you're so blessed to get all these great things happen. And you get a little cocky and you're like, damn straight. This is my club. And this is all, <laughs> and these girls are this and this, and I'm, you know, and it was, it was a brilliant, brilliant time. And I'm so lucky to be a part of it. Was that uh, a fair representation of the scene at the time? The whole metal years documentary? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and the, the thing that I really liked about the metal years was it didn't show it in the great light because it showed all these people that is like, oh, we're going to be big. We're going to be big. We're, and they weren't. And there's a lot of bands. And especially now, even the bands that were big, you know, if you were a band that could still go out and play 700 seaters every night, it's good. Well, you know, in the past two years, I don't care what band you're in. If you don't have millions in the bank, it's tough out yeah. there right now because you can't play shows and people aren't buying records. So it was really tough, but there were a lot of bands that were like, you know, really sure of themselves and nothing ever happened, you know, nothing ever happened. So it was because we all, you know, when everybody around you is getting record deals and everybody's making a million bucks, you think, well, hell, if that band did it, yeah. he used to work at my liquor store. I can do it too. And you can't. It's not that easy. 
You've had a great career, and there's there's so much more we could talk about between NASCAR and 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 all the other stuff that you've done. Like you mentioned, the, the stuff in WCW and all that sort of thing. Do you look at the time at Headbangers Ball as kind of being one of the highlights of your of your career? Yeah, the the big. I mean, if 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 anybody said, "What am I most proud of?" It's the legacy of the Cat House, without a doubt. Oh yeah, but. But the Headbangers Ball, and the problem is because I'm one of those crazy people that has always suffered from depression and always hard on myself and always, I didn't appreciate it then. And it's still taken a while to appreciate how lucky I was. I mean, I have worked with every single band anybody could want to meet. You know, Lemmy was my friend. Yeah. You know, I got to work. I mean, Led Zeppelin and and the Rolling Stones are the only two bands that I've never met anybody in. You know, I hung out with Brian Johnson and Angus Young. You know, I got to do all this stuff. And when you're given all this stuff and it just keeps on happening, 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 you almost get complacent. And I wish I would have, I wish the old Ricky could said, dude, look around and appreciate this because this is rad, you know? (laughs) And it didn't. And it is, and it's also, it's also very weird. For me to sit back and people say like, you know, you're the spokesperson for hard rock or heavy metal. I'm like, no, I'm not. I don't. I didn't want to be that big, especially because I'm not the most knowledgeable. I've, I've forgotten way more than I remember. But it's, but it's still so flattering that, you know, people say I grew up watching you, which used to be really weird because I grew up with like I, in America we had like Captain Kangaroo and Mr. Rogers <laughs> and Sesame Street. Yeah. That's what I grew up. But when people say I grew up watching the Headbangers Ball, at first I was like, yeah, whatever. And now I'm like, wow, thank you. That really means a lot to me. And and it, it's a responsibility to have that. That when somebody tells you, hey, I I really liked you on Headbangers Ball. That that's something that was very personal to them. And if I was like a dick. It's like, that's discounting what they feel. So you have to take that time. If somebody appreciates what you do to acknowledge like, whoa, thank you very much. You know, I remember Mm. meeting Evil Knievel as a kid. And if he was just a total jerk, he wasn't (laughs) the nicest guy. But if he was a total jerk, screw you, Evil Knievel. You know, and you know that because (laughs) in both of the both of your careers, you care so much about fans. And, you know, I I, got to tell you just to bring it for one second. Um, I went to a, a house show for AEW in Charlotte and after the event, you know, everybody, Cody and everybody brought some kid in the ring and they let the kid pin him and, and even the heels and baby faces were all working together to do this stuff for the fans. And I was like, wow, like, like what you guys are doing, you don't understand what you guys are doing right now is changing somebody's life. You know, that kid that's in the front row and and watching watching in the ring and then, you know, you just nodding at him, he will remember that his entire life. So to think that people watched Headbangers Ball in certain instances that maybe they met me and they, okay, it, they might not remember that their whole mm-hmm. life, but there's certain things that, that this, this rock and roll and this wrestling is such an important part. And they hold this so personal that, that you're changing their lives. And I, I don't want to say that I changed anybody's lives because I didn't, but to think that that music scene was so important that they stayed home Saturday night and they couldn't wait to watch the headbangers ball and let me in their homes that's very flattering. Absolutely. You're part of you're part of their lives for sure. Um, have you ever thought about doing a documentary about the cat house? Yes. Once somebody somebody pitched me a script and I did like a it. movie or a documentary. I'm talking a documentary. Well, I put it this way. I want to do it, but it has to be the right people. So I'm doing this interview four months ago, this video thing for this big benefit with Alice Cooper. And all Alice Cooper is like, why aren't you doing a cat house documentary? You can pitch it to This is Alice Cooper telling me, dude, you need to do a cat house documentary. If somebody approached me and said, we want to do a documentary about the cat house, I would. But it has to be the right way because this is my legacy. This sure. is everything to me. The reason that you're not seeing Cat House shirts sold in Hot Topic and only by me is because I don't want it to go the way of an Ed Hardy shirt. You know, I want it to be <laughs> the cool thing that it still is. And I would do a documentary if it was done the right way. I mean, it would have to be not the, hey, everything's happening great. It would have to be the like, oh, and this person ended up dying and this is how our friend died because of drugs. And this is, you know, and it would have to include, you know, some of the key figures. I would love to do it. I think it's worthy of it. I think it's, you know, I mean, 
put it this way we were dirtier than the dirt and and our stuff was all true so (laughs) there's that look (laughs) i would i would i would be interested in doing it if it was for the right reason you know i i hope one day i do do it all they have to do is listen to the old cat house podcast that i don't really do anymore but i will and they'll get the idea that hey this could be something because it was because People want to know about that stuff, you know, because mm-hmm. it's a it was it was a magical time that yes. will never be duplicated right. ever in anything, be. in anything. People don't aren't willing to work hard to go out and go do stuff. They want everything right here and, and instantaneously. Last question for you. Who's your favorite band? Uh, if you had to pick one Is there, or, or, or bands. Motorhead. Ah, nice. Motorhead. I got all my stuff. If you don't know the story, because it was all over the place last week, I got a gift last week that is the coolest thing that I have ever received in my entire life. And last week in the mail, I received a, a bullet and I saw this bullet and it said Lemmy on it. And I was like, wow. And I was showing my girlfriend, I'm like, look at this. This is, I wonder if this was one of Lemmy's bullets that he kept in his belt, you know? And I'm looking at it. I'm like, this is, this is really neat. And she's like, have you read the letter that comes with it? I'm like, no. And I read the letter and it's, I'm getting teary eyed when I said it. it was Lemmy's ashes. Yeah. It was Lemmy's ashes. Were, and Lemmy said when he died, he wanted his ashes to be placed in bullets and given to his close personal friends. That's awesome. And I only know of two other people that got it. And I know other people got it. But I got a bullet with Lemmy's ashes. And Lemmy has always been a very, very, very good person to me. And I've always asked who really is my favorite band. And it always took time. But Motorhead was the only band that in the 70s, when I loved punk rock, I listened to Motorhead. And as I got older and I started listening to more metal, I liked Motorhead. Motorhead. (laughs) And today I listen to Motorhead. I mean, of course, I love, you know, a lot of the the bands like everybody else likes and the GNRs and the Megadeths and stuff like that. But, you know, I really, really like... um, I love Motorhead. I also really like Paul McCartney and Wings, but not the Beatles. <laughs> oh, wow. That's interesting. <laughs> I like pa- I love Paul McCartney and Wings, but I wasn't a big Beatles. Isn't that weird that I wasn't like a big Beatles fan? But I love Paul McCartney and Wings. It's and funny. ELO. I had uh, uh, Lemmy on my podcast. I said, what do you say when people say Lemmy's God? He goes, I'm not God. God's taller. <laughs> he's classic Lemmy. He right? was the coolest person. And he always treated me so me too. well. Yeah. And, and, you know, he, the people that he liked, he treated right. And he was just such a great, I mean, he played the cat house so many times. Motorhead is the only band that I have tattooed on me and I'm going to get another tattoo. I'm going to get born to born to lose, live to win, which is another Lemmy thing, you know, because it was just a great band. And Lemmy was, he was, he was the best rock star without being a rock star. And you know what I mean, because yeah. you met Lemmy. He never really acted like a rock star. He just wanted to give him his jack and put him in the corner. He was also a perfect gentleman, too. He was, I never never heard him be rude to anybody, always treated women with respect. Just a great, great guy. And people, and so many people have used the word gentleman, gentleman. to describe Lemmy. Yeah. That's a word that, that gets used a lot is gentleman. Yeah. Ricky, it's been great talking to you, man. So much history, and uh, I, I, I have a feeling we're going to do more of these uh, in the future about different topics for sure. I can't wait to go out and see you at, yes. at both AEW and when Fozzie plays, and I will definitely be at both of them as soon as we can. I promise to get you a 10% discount on tickets. Yes, I got that going <laughs> for me. Thank you, dude. It's great talking to you, man. Thanks. Thanks.